0: It makes me very, very happy, and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with, and let's work out together. Hello, team, and welcome to episode 174 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Speed, Chris is a weightlifting and performance coach, an educator and an athlete himself. Chris's health and fitness journey began with a background in rugby where he was climbing the professional ranks. And in order to compete on the rugby pitch, he needed to get stronger. And that's where he found himself venturing into the world of Olympic weightlifting. Fast forward some years and Chris has won a silver and bronze medal in his respective weight categories at the British Championships. He also leads the team at Ronin Strength where him and his team coach a number of athletes and everyday people to their strength for performance goals. In this conversation you can expect to learn is it ever too late to start Olympic weightlifting, how to manage your mindset in high-pressure competitions, and the future of weightlifting in the Olympics, and the prevalence of doping in the sport along with much much more. So without further ado chris speed chris speed welcome to the show how are you today
1: i'm doing all right how are you
0: yeah i'm very well thank you thank you for being here and usually we do head straight into the guests backstory but because you've just come off the back of competing i want to ask you how you got on yesterday and how your uh, how you rate your performance how your experience was Was that your first competition post lockdown as well i imagine
1: this is my first no second in-person competition Post-lockdown. This is my first British championships in about what was it, three or four years. It's in person as well.
0: Wow. So how did it feel going back on to that big of a platform following the COVID situation? Did things feel a little bit different or do they feel very similar now?
1: It was unexpected. Like I wasn't planning on going to this one. It was just nice that I managed to go. So there wasn't a lot of pressure on this one because I don't really have to I don't have this, the, my competitions like British champs, English and stuff aren't leading towards anything afterwards, which is also quite nice. And it was just, it was fun. But like this, because this is a Commonwealth year, the British champs is done in like a grand fashion. So sometimes when, I suppose the way you could, you could like compare it is sometimes when it's in competitions, it's a little bit like playing Sunday league football. So it's nice to play, but it's just, a, but it's a football match and there's not really that much, you know, grandeur about it. Whereas for this one, it was a, it was a sporting event. So it feels like there's a little bit more to it and a lot more about it. So that was, that was a nice one to do. And there's a lot of other people from my club and that I've been friends with that I started competing with. Like we all did our first competition together. who we were also there. So it was a weird, it was a very weird, but very nice like, culmination of a lot of different things. So it was a really good one to, it was a really good first one to do after a long time.
0: Yeah. As you mentioned before we came on air It's the case of not having as much pressure or expectation on. So you could have just gone to have fun realistically and then see how your athletes got on as well. Did you get bronze yesterday? Is that
1: right? And so, yeah, I got bronze. My friend Dave, that I trained, that I trained, he was one of my first training partners in London got silver. And then one of my coaches and my friends, Benedict got first. So that was also a really, that was also just very nice, very nice, very nice coincidence. Yeah. That's awesome. So in the same weight category, so you're all on the same podium basically. Yeah. Yeah. And we all kind of, we were all split up before. So David's supposed to be above, Benedict was supposed to be in the one we were in and I was supposed to be below and we all ended up into that one. So that was quite, that was quite fun as well.
0: Sure. And what was the weight category? And also in terms of your totals, what did you achieve and what was the difference between third, second
1: and first? I got 289, David got second, he got 300 and Benedict got 301. So it was quite, it's fairly close between me and David. It's like, I'm not that far, not that far away. Whereas David and Benedict, that was a kilo apart, which is very, 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 very close.
0: That is super close. And yeah, I just wanted to specify we're talking in kilos here, just in case people think we're speaking in (laughs) pounds. Awesome. So I wanted to go a step back to get started on where your journey with weightlifting and coaching began. I understand that you played rugby when you were a lot younger. So where did that all begin in terms of just your interest in sport, your interest in health and fitness, and how has that developed since then?
1: Um, I started off, I'm pretty sure it would have been the same as most kids in England who were kind of like all born sort of like, you know, like early to like mid-90s. I played football, uh, football, tennis, but just basically anything you got told to play at school. Enjoyed most of it. I don't really consciously remember thinking about anything as intensely as I did rugby or lifting when I found it. So I just did everything that I normally did at school, did like skateboarding, rollerblading, VMXing, all that stuff. And then I was very much into watching football casually, didn't really understand the rules, and American football. But we, there wasn't American football to play um, at that stage, not for kids anyway. So I remember seeing a rugby game with Joan Lomu playing And that was the first time I'd seen a rugby match where I'd actually paid attention to it. And I thought that is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. So that's what got me into rugby. When I got to about 14 or 15, that's when you could start playing for the year above. So, you could play for the under 15s instead of just the under 13s or 14s. But I got told, oh, yeah, you're quite, you're probably not going to get any taller and you're quite small. So, if you want to start playing for the senior team when you go to senior school, um, secondary school and so stuff, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get bigger so you can go to the gym. No one knew what they were doing at the gym. Like my, my head of sport at the time looked like he basically just packed a Christian and smoked cigarettes outside of school. So, he just said, go on the internet, go use the IT department and find a gym program, just search on Google. Um, and the only thing I could find was tnation.com on bodybuilding.com but when i put in rugby or american football programs it all came up with stuff like um just you know tutorials on here's how to do a power clean here's how to do a back and a front squat here's um here's box jump variations and stuff so everything was everything was actually pretty solid because i don't think there was that much information out at the time on it that could really steer you wrong whereas now you've got 101 different people all putting out information some of it good some of it great a lot of it really bad and the really bad stuff tends to be what grabs people's attention and that's when i started just doing like basic power cleans and i taught myself how to do them then i got to i got to academy level at bedford and there was a really good strength and conditioning coach called jamie bain i think he had all of us in from the academy he basically like right i need to show you how to do these lifts so you can do this program and i don't have to babysit you through it because i've got to handle all of you like uh, at the club and he showed me how to do a power snatch the power clean properly and then he said oh you'll be able to lift more if you just catch a power snatch where you just sit all the way down And that's how he coached me to do it. He taught me how to like triple extend and all that stuff. And then when I caught a power and she just said, okay, catch it. And then just really smoothly, just sit down in one motion. And he's like, just keep doing that until you can catch it all the way at the bottom. And then that's it. You'll be able to do, you'll be able to go heavier. It'll be more fun. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I just didn't really think any more of it apart from that. And it wasn't until I started slowly progressing towards end of like my rugby career where I played professionally very briefly and then realized it wasn't what I thought it was going to be because I, I didn't have the right mindset going towards making it, making it like a career and then stuff about weightlifting competition started to pop up. And someone said, oh, you should compete. You should look at doing it. Um, This is in the days where you don't go and just sign up on the website and pay your 20 or 30 pounds online. This was you send the competition organizer an email and 20 pounds in an envelope. So I was like, I don't know what, I've got no idea what I'm doing. So I'm just not going to bother. My first coach and the first club I worked for, I worked for London Olympic Weightlifting Academy. Um, Mike ran an unofficial novice comp. Like, you know, there's loads of them now, like quite a lot of them to do them because it's nice and fun. You know, people can come and lift in a less intimidating environment. You don't have to have a singlet. You don't have a lot to sign up for. I went to that. I competed in that one. He told me, you need to do another one of these. He's like, just message me and I'll help you out with it. And I said, oh yeah, I'll do one eventually. Didn't do it for like six months. Came to another one of his novice comps. Did another competition, talked to him about his place, did another one, talked to him about it. And he said, oh yeah, we'll do another one. I'll I'll plan it just like in a couple of months, just think about doing a proper one. He just said like, is rugby season over? I was like, yeah, I'm not really going to play rugby as seriously anymore. And I think he just messaged me saying, you owe me 30 quid, I've signed you up to comp, you need to turn up to Crystal Palace on this day. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, And that's how it started. I kind of just got like shoved into it. And it was always a case of with coaching, online coaching, starting a business, Weightlifting. I was always like, oh, I might do it, but I don't really want to. Like, I'm not really sure. Like, I was always not very sure. And it was other people going, "You need to at least try it." Like, you know, like, like, like a lot of things. And then I ended up going, "Oh, actually, it's actually this is actually a really good decision." So I kind of fell into it. A lot of people now, because the pathway through CrossFit is very cut and dry. Like, you can start weightlifting tomorrow if you want to, and you can find a place um, within reason. It wasn't like that. I basically just very slowly realized that I was going from rugby focused and doing a bit of PT and running some classes to weightlifting focused and just coaching weightlifting.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And that's uh, a funny story how you just kind of got pushed into it and where you find yourself today, right? <laughs> it always seems to be the way. Sometimes when you try to plan these things out to a T, they don't really work out. But sometimes when it's just a set of situations that come through, then it usually ends up going a little bit better than you even expected. So in terms of your early competition experience, what was your first one like? Did, was it a bit foreign? Was
1: it a bit like, not sure what I'm doing here, but how did you get on? The first novice one, I remember going in and thinking, oh, I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, I just went there just to try in. I went there just trying to hit like, like close to what numbers i hit in training. But I was like like a lot of guys who come from rugby and are quite strong and are fast, but don't have very good techniques. You don't really know what you're doing yet. I could snatch 120 or I could miss 100. Like I, I just didn't really know what I was doing consistently. So I went there, I had fun. And then I think I didn't realize that I was actually a lot further ahead than everyone else who's doing the novice comp. I think I was doing like, one, something like 110, 150. And 150 is not that far off of what I do now. So I was doing 110, 140 or 50 kilos on a clean and jerk. And everyone else in the boys group was like, they were just about snatching 90 or just about clean and jerking 130. So I was quite far ahead, but didn't really know. So then when I talked to Mike, he was saying that, like, oh, like these are the bigger comps you can go for. Because I think he realized that my whole thing was oh, I need to I want to be competitive. I don't just want to do it for enjoyment and just go and see what happens. So he started saying these are the standards you need to hit to go to the British or the English. So in the first in-person comp I went to that he got me to go to, he didn't actually tell me what the totals were for the British and English. We just set out some totals that I could open on that were going to be fairly easy for me to hit and qualify me straight away. So my first in-person comp was um it was weird because like in a rugby or football environment, there's a lot of noise going on. There's constant movement and noise throughout the whole match until you finish, whereas weightlifting is a little bit slower. Um, it's a little bit more intense and it's in, in in a different way. So I think it took me a little, bit, a little bit, it took me a little while just to get used to how different it was. But once I've kind of done the first, my official competition, that was a case, I know, I, I like this. I'm going to keep on doing them.
0: Yeah, there's really no other sport like it. I was trying to think of anything that can closely compare, but all team sports are out of the equation because you've got someone else to count on All ball sports are out of the occasion because there's unpredictability of a ball. And then you've got to think about a crowd as well. And it's like the one sport in which you are literally got the conditions that are very, very repeatable every single time. And there isn't a lot of impact from anything outside of yourself. Can you think of any sport that's similar in that sense? I don't think I can.
1: I think the the only ones you're really going to be be able to look at is other tr- is track and field, other Olympic sports. But even then, like you're looking at so shot put, throwing sports, maybe maybe the jumping sports because you are competing against other people. But it is a case of it's a few attempts. I think shot putt and disc shot discus, and jumping, like triple jump and stuff. I think it's you get two or three attempts, the same as this, and it's up. And you obviously you're going in like a random order, and it's very much a case of you're going against other people, but not at the same time. And the only thing you can see is the leaderboard in terms of what their number is, so what they've jumped or what they've thrown. And it's up to you to beat it that way. So there is a bit more. Yeah, you're right. It's very, it's very odd because you are competing against other people, but you're also just competing against yourself a little bit. Because if it's a combat sport, you don't really know what the other person's going to do. So there is a degree of I've just got to try and do the best that I can do here because I've just got to hope that it's going to turn out okay. Whereas with weightlifting, and um, powerlifting, throwing, the implement is the same every time. The weather's almost the same every time, especially if you're indoors. Your weight class is almost the same every time. Your shoe, like, everything's usually the same. So if you don't do as well. You know, it's just some. It's almost always just internal. It's something that you haven't controlled properly yet, to a degree. So that I think that's in a way that's more nerve wracking in a way because if it's um, a football game and someone opposite is just a lot better than you then it's a case of, well, I can't do anything about that. They're just better than me. Yeah. If it's a case of your weightlifting and your 20 kilos below your best total, it's like, well, you have to look at yourself and your coaches and be like, well, why couldn't I do that today? And then you have to yeah, go back and fix it. And that's, that, that's a very, and you see a lot of people who should be very good at a very high level and they end up breaking down because like they just get broken down like that just purely through attrition that like, that just breaks them down.
0: Yeah. I can completely understand. It's also, it's the one sport where you just have to look at yourself and that's, All you can do, right, is you have to take that accountability. And that's probably one of the biggest teaching cues and coaching cues you give to your athletes these days, right? Is that, you know, if if the competition didn't go well, then we need to look into what part of it didn't work. Was it the mindset? Was it, you know, just a off day? Was it nutrition? Something along those lines. And speaking of, how do you manage your mindset when it comes to competitions? And how do you manage uh, your
1: athletes' mindsets? This is what I've gone more into over the years. Because before I would always have been like, well, the mindset kind of just is how it is. I didn't really know that much about it. Like, I don't I don't know what you, I don't know what you will have studied if you've like gone to university or anything. But if you do sports psychology university, it's basically you touch very broadly on a few different pieces, but there's no, there's no real like depth to it. So you don't learn that much about things, but just looking at the way that people are, you don't get many people who really actually do very well focused on someone else and beating someone else and almost making enemies out of other people. One of my friends, um, I was fortunate to be able to be to become friends with Zach Tellender. So he's a YouTuber who does like loads of stuff on um on weightlifting, but he did a video on um the toxic champion mindset. So basically Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan and how they make enemies out of people. So even if like um Michael Jordan would do stuff as petty as if the the barista at the, his local coffee shop gave him the wrong coffee in the morning or spelt his name wrong on the cup. That would become a thing where he would stew on that and make them there. his like arch enemies. So he had something to be angry about. Most people that I meet, they just don't, it doesn't make sense to them to do that because it just makes them very negative. It makes them break down inside. And it's just, there's no real point to it. Some people do really well with healthy competition and them competing with others. It's a lot of the time, the boys that I coach, if they have things to compete with against each other, to compare and almost get themselves onto a leaderboard and create a hierarchy out of it, they do really well. With the girls, some of them will try to do that because they think they should. And then it ends up making them upset. So just focusing on what they're doing and the process of it and what they're achieving makes a lot more sense. And I think that's usually where I'll go first. It's like, yeah, this, the competition's good, but you need to enjoy it. So it's always about, you need to make sure you enjoy this because if you're, if you're getting given a hundred grand a year to do whatever job it is, it's very likely if you're good at it, even if you don't enjoy it all the time, you will just find a way to get through it. But if it's a job or it's a second unpaid career, like weightlifting becomes when you're trying to compete at a higher level in it, you need to make sure you're enjoying it. Cause as soon as that enjoyment drops a little bit, like mm, you're going to, you're going to struggle and it doesn't mean it's going to be fun all the time, but you have to find a way as a whole to met, to, to net like a positive, enjoy enjoyable experience. And that's, the, and that's the main thing. For competitions, it's different. People respond very, in a very different way. Um, so, for example, for me, I would always go into a competition thinking, right, if I don't feel great, I'll put in low openers, knowing that I can bank those if I have to, to then set up for a good competition to build confidence. My friend, um, she, she was actually the first, one of my first friends in weightlifting that I now get the fortune to help her, Mercy Brown. She warmed up for competition yesterday, felt absolutely awful, got towards her last warm ups. And then just, I just said, how do you feel? She's like, right, well, what do I need to total? I was like, well, you need this to win. She's like, put five kilos more and it'll be fine. And it's like, are you sure? It's like, yeah, just, just throw it on. I'm going to win. So it's got, and she'll, she'll have absolute supreme confidence be like, just throw it on because she thrives in competition. So it's figuring out what is it that you need to thrive in competition? Are you going to be that person who will snatch 100 in training just about, and, then, and it's heavy, but then you'll open at 105 because you know you've got it. Or are you someone who will snatch 120 in training, but I'm going to open you at 100 because you're not necessarily going to hit that come because of nerves. So it's always working out what the individual needs So that then you can kind of build them into competitions that way. Because some people will never be, will never have a massive head for competition. So you have to kind of make them lift within themselves and make them win by just making sure they feel safe and consistent, which has its own problems. Then some people will, they will, even if they've got like a torn calf or like a busted hamstring, they'll still find a way to do all all their lifts and burn themselves out. And that has its own problems. Then you have to stop them doing that all the time. So it's just working out what mindset do you have, what's the, what's your life, what what makes you go, and then what do I need to do to make sure that you don't hurt yourself? Yeah, hundred percent, because if you are coaching
0: weightlifting, of course, but you're also just coaching people and their personalities, and that must be one of the hardest things, especially when it comes to a composition where you have three attempts at this lift. And I can imagine, I'm not sure how you feel, but if you miss that first one, that puts a lot of pressure on the second one. But like you said, if you go into that low opener, you've got that first one banked, you know, at least you're going to get a score from that. Then at least that's something right. I can't imagine what it would be like if you don't even have a score on the board, and then you're going into your second with that pressure that comes on each time, especially in a snatch. I'm
1: sure that's more inconsistent than a clean and jerk. No? Yeah. So what I think, um, this is actually something they go over. Like if you even go onto the British weightlifting website, I think they actually have the standards of what they expect from you. If you're going to go to an international, and one of the things that is like a almost is a red flag is if you're making less than four out of six lifts each competition, or you're not making your first natural clean and jerk. Cause the way you'd look at it is if you make your first snatch, that sets the momentum running, like you're, you're, you're hitting the ground running now. If you miss your first one, they've now got to think, okay, so are the nerves getting to you? Is it just too heavy? It brings a lot more like decisions you have to make into it. And then you're also playing catch-up. So if you have to retake your first weight, everyone else has gone up. So now you're being left behind. Now you've got to catch up on cleaning jerks. So that's the, that's the other thing as well. Like getting the first snatch in is usually the most nerve-wracking part. And you'll see that like with um, the men, so one of the men's uh, Commonwealth categories yesterday was 109. Almost every single person was opening on snatches of 140, 145, 140, 145. One guy opened on 147. One person missed 145 and immediately the whole board shuffled around and everyone's sprinting around trying to figure out what they're doing. So if you miss, it completely reshuffles you in the order of where you are, especially in big competitions. So you always want to be aiming to like, if you can get as close to 100% success rate on your first, first snatch and clean and jerk, your first attempts. That's something that people will look at and think, okay, you know what, you probably know what you're doing. Then if you're making two from six most competitions, then you're always going to assume that on the last one of your third snatch or third clean jet, that's where you're going to go for something bigger. So that's that's kind of what people will expect.
0: I guess it sets more people up for injuries as well, right? If you've missed that first and second, you're just going to go in at the weight that you're not sure if you can lift, but you just you want to get a score. You want to win, right? So you're taking those bigger increments and those bigger risks. So I can see why they're saying, you know, the standard is to yeah, not miss four of your lists, essentially. So with your competing ambitions moving forward, where do you want to take this and where do you think you can take it genetically? I've got a question on genetics later, but I'd be keen to hear where you think you can take this.
1: It really depends where Rodin goes. We've got some plans for expanding out this year. And it really just depends on what I end up being motivated by, because we're going to have more chances for our team to go full-time. Everyone's like coaching online, and then coaching a bit in person and we're slowly building things up. So obviously just try and make things as stable as possible because the the whole thing is about not just giving people good coaching, but also trying to give coaches a good place to work. Because one of the things I noticed the further I went through the industry from working like Bedford and the St. Nia's down to here is a lot of coaches leave places not because they don't like it, but just because they don't earn enough and there's not enough stability, which is another issue. But uh, if I get more time to train and the company starts to be to a point where more people want to come in and take over more like managerial roles, i will probably focus on trying to just trying to bump my total up as far as I could. I think weighing around the weight class, I'm normally in like 89 to 96 ish. I think I could probably get towards like 50, 85 on a snatch and clean and jerk. If I went heavier, I reckon I could push those numbers a bit further, but I just don't, I just don't really know because training has been so difficult because of work the last few years. So I've had to focus on it and sometimes I'm not accepted. I have to focus on work a little bit more and drop off the training. So then I've up burning out and then physically hurting myself because I've just tried to force it. So I don't have a good impression. I know I can do, a, do more, but I don't know how much more on this. And then we want to move into things like, you know, like helping, you know, helping coach CrossFit and try to have a bit of more of a presence in that industry through coaching, not just through specifically the weightlifting part. So we can bring more good coaches on through that. Um, and then looking at stuff like, um, we have a lot of people who either play rugby or do like BJJ or like mixed martial arts. So we want to try and provide strength and conditioning or even coaching eventually, if we got a big enough place for almost more individual sports, because the individual sports are the the individual sports, are like fighting, like weightlifting, powerlifting, they're weird because you don't need a team to, perform, to, to compete in them, but you really, it's, it's a real struggle if you don't have a team to train for them. So if you're, if you're a mixed martial artist, you could say, well, you can hit a bag by yourself, you can condition by yourself. But if you don't have someone to spar with, you don't have someone to drill with, you don't have someone to hold your pads, you don't have a nutritionist, you don't have someone to do S&C, it's a hard time. Whereas for rugby, if you go to team training two, three times a week, you get on the bus every Saturday to go to the game, you can handle your gym yourself, you can do your nutrition yourself, you can do your mobility yourself. Like There's actually, it's actually a lot of stuff you can do by yourself to make yourself better. Whereas with the individual sports, the higher up you get, the more stressful it is. You need to be able to offload some of the decision making, some of the stress into other people. But it's very difficult to have a team around you in an individual sport. Like it's very, it's a very difficult thing to set up. That a lot of people don't understand. So that's where we go next. And I probably want to do some of those things. So like I've wanted to do a martial arts since I was younger. I did karate and then got annoyed that you couldn't spar when you're like ten. <laughs> so then I stopped because I was like, we're not allowed to hit each other. So this is pointless. So I left things like CrossFit or like turf games, national fitness games type stuff. Um, I want to try that because if we're going to start doing, bringing on coaches to do more of it or work into that eventually, I want to do it. So I can have a feel for what it's like. Cause weightlifting is I know full well, the only reason some of the boys that I coach listen to me is because I still train and because I've seen where I've got to. So if I tell them something and say, this is what this is going to feel like, or this is what you need to do for this, this is where we need to try and get this, they'll kind of trust me a little bit because they're like, well, you're, you're, you are doing it or you have done it. So I feel like just being able to fall back on first hand experience, it allows you to empathize and I identify with people that you help a little bit more. So that would be my next plans. But with the weightlifting numbers, I just have no I have absolutely no idea of where of how far I'll be able to go with it. I know I can do more, but I just don't know how much. Like it's really hard. It's really hard to put a number on it.
0: Do you feel that your days with weightlifting are like numbered now? Do you feel like you're going to set kind of that final competition? Then you are going to broaden your horizons a little bit more. It sounds like you've got a lot of other interests. And I can imagine a lot of athletes who, like you said, they're not making a living out of weightlifting potentially or any other sport that they're in. And that's where you mentioned in terms of having that team is so important because of the enjoyment aspect comes from having that team and those people around you. But I'm sure there's that thing in two minds, very like business is going really well. I'm enjoying coaching my athletes. You know, how much longer do I do this individual sport versus just, yeah, placing my efforts here and then broadening my horizons a little bit more?
1: When it was, when I thought I would have a, a chance at maybe being able to go for a Commonwealth game selection, and like that was, that would have been hard because of the lads I was against. So, one of the guys I competed with since I started, like, seriously competing. Jack Dobson is someone that I could compete against. Then there's a lad Edmund uh, Abatissian who basically always runs away with our weight class. Like he's 20-30 kilos above us. As soon as I was like, I'm probably not going to catch you boys anymore. It was a case of I'm what I was then like, I'm going to probably end up extending how long I'm doing weightlifting for. There's not going to be a hard and fast. This is the end date. Whereas if it was Commonwealth Games, I managed to go if i manage to do well, then that would be a case of, right, so for the next year, I can go do something else because I'm probably not going to want to train that hard for the rest of it. Because I've seen some people like um, Emily Campbell, for example, after she won her medal. And I remember asking her um, as a joke, oh, do you kind of feel like you've completed it? like you completed the game, so you don't want to play anymore. She was like, she's like, I actually seriously did for a bit. And I was like, I don't really know if I want to carry on. It's like, what? I've got a silver medal. What am I supposed to do now? And I think it's a case of when you go to a bigger event, sometimes you'll feel like, oh, well, I've kind of... You get a feeling, I got it when I played my first actual professional game in the championship for rugby. And when I went to my first like, really big sevens tournament, which is like an invitational one. I think it was in, um, it might be in Amsterdam, I think. I can't remember where it was. But I kind of got a bit of a feeling of, oh, well, that's kind of, that's it. That's basically probably almost as high as I'm going to get. To so them, there was a bit of a feeling of, I'm not sure if I want to do it again cause I've kind of kicked it off and I'm not sure if I'm ready to go back and do it again. But now I'll keep on lifting and doing the lifts and like powerlifting and weightlifting and that style of training probably for, forever in some format. But in terms of being able to push numbers where I'm like, I'm going to keep going for something heavier and bigger and bigger and bigger in weightlifting competitions, probably not that much longer. Um, I'll probably keep on doing competitions, but the mindset of I want to try and go to a bigger competition. I want to try and push for an international, which is very unlikely at this stage, but you know, it is what it is, is, probably sooner. So probably in the next two or three years, I probably would not worry about competitions as much. In terms of training, I've got friends or people that we coach who are masters who are getting towards 35, 38, where they're still actually making progress in their lifts. It's just a case of they have to chase them a little bit differently. So then they're still hitting PBs, like lifetime ones, but it's just they have to chase them a bit differently. So it's just a case of I will stop training for being stronger with a bar when I just think it's literally just not realistic for me to do so any longer. Or the time I have to put into it is like, I literally don't have that. So I need to focus on something else, but with most weightlifters on an international level, they stop when they're like 20, late late twenties, but that's because they start when they're 15 and they get, have to compete so heavily going into Olympic cycles that like they end up not actually having much left mentally and physically to give into it because they need to recover. But with people who start later, where you're not able to train twice a day, you're not training for three, four hours at a time. You're not absolutely battering yourself and you're not taking some of like, you know, some of the, some of the less. Clean nations, you know, you're not taking the weird, you know, the naughty, you know, vitamins and minerals that some of them get to take. I just don't think you're going to break apart as fast. So, when you look at some powerlifters on a world level, they keep going to like 40, 42, 43. They keep hitting slightly bigger numbers. So. Weightlifting-wise, probably mid-30s. Powerlifting stuff, CrossFit-style stuff, probably. I don't know when I'd stop training or if I would stop training, but in terms of the numbers, folks, it's basically as soon as I go, I'm literally... like, You can usually feel when like you've hit the wall, and it's like, I'm not going to get any further than that. So it's basically when I hit the wall, I'll then go, I'll stop there. Because if I do it before that, I'll be like, ah, I don't know if I'm ready to stop yet. I'll think I'll know when it's like, that's the time. I'm going to stop there.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, you're someone who's probably very aware of your body, very aware of your capacity. And like you said, you're not got this unrealistic view of like, it almost sounds like you're not doing it for the wrong reasons as if like, you're not like just striving for the medal where, you know, a lot of people would ignore those internal cues. They would sacrifice all other areas of their life just to do something that eventually they're not going to reach. Whereas you're doing it. What sounds like to me intrinsically. And that's why you can have this connection with the sport where like the sport is important to me. Fitness is important to me, but winning that medal, I, I, I need to accept where my genetics and age play a part in this ultimately. Right. And I'm not To take drugs, which we'll which we'll definitely touch on in just a moment. So, in terms of genetics and age, how old are you at the moment? Twenty
1: nine. I turn thirty at the end of the year in December.
0: Okay. So, how much does genetics and age play a factor
1: in the sport? They obviously they do play a factor, but how much of a factor is very. It's very fluid. It's like, you know, the whole discussion of saying like, Oh, um, you know, training's only 20% of the equation. Um, nutrition is another 80%. Well, it's like, well, we all know there's a lad who just trains and he's absolute crap and he can just clean up his diet for two weeks and then he's absolutely shredded. So like, obviously that's not the same for all of us. We also know people who will train twice a week because that's the only, all they have time for. And they're stronger than everyone we know. Then we also know people who train six times a week and they really enjoy it, but they, their progress is so slow. But six times a week is what they need, so it's it's hard, It's very difficult. So again, using my friend as an example, Mercy, after a lot of stuff happened and like COVID happened, and we went to look at preparing for the British, she had about ten to twelve weeks, and she said, "I need to prep for this comp. I'm back. I want to do this." Ten to twelve weeks hits a total PB and a snatch and a snatch PB all time at a competition after not really being able to train for quite a long time. Like I'm talking like years. Whereas I know other people who've been training for basically years leading into this comp consistently. Whereas this is their last chance. and um, they've made they've maybe not even they've maybe not even hit all their lifts. So it's a case of it's the genetics plays into the genetics plays into it. But I think if you worry about your genetics, you're just not going to see how far you can go anyway like you're probably not going to reach your genetic potential in a sport because you've got other stuff to do. So it's almost a case of your potential is probably here, but to reach that, the amount of stuff you'll have to do, you'll probably never actually find out what that is. So you're always going to be just kind of reaching for it here. So you might as well just, you might as well not really worry about it. It's a case of if you're looking to compete for a job or you're looking to do a sport professionally, yeah, you probably should figure out which one you're best suited to genetically, but you probably won't even know that. Like Shane Williams, uh, the Welsh rugby player, he was what, he was like 5'5", all of about 70 kilos in a wet, in a wet jersey. And he was there, I'm pretty sure he a top try scorer, played for... He played way into his start. I think he was like 36, 37 when he retired on the wing, which is rare, but he wasn't suited for rugby. Like you look at him and the way he's built, it's like, you're going to get snapped in half. Whereas you get a lot of other players who came through rugby league who are bigger than him who are underachievers. So it's just a case of, it's just more about, do you have the mindset for it? Do you know how to approach sport properly? Like, you, like if your mindset is there, you will beat a lot of people who should, physically like you know stand be able to wipe the floor with you just because you know how to approach the sport better so i would say it does play a factor but i just think people shouldn't worry about it most of us aren't going to the olympics most of us aren't even going to do the sport and get paid so just worry about what you can do now it's like if you start when you're 28 or 29 and you think oh well i should have started earlier so there's no point it's like well that's not really the right way to look at it like you, you didn't start when you, when, when, yeah, when, exactly. you were, when you were younger and you probably weren't going to go pro anyway Like looking at the odds so you might as well just have fun with it like yeah I think they play a, they play a part when you're looking at the top top level but most of us aren't going to get there so there's no point worrying about it
0: yeah, that's so true. And as you mentioned, it's like that one percent. So if you are looking to start late, and that is a question I had for you next: is is it ever too late to start? Especially if you want to be competitive, or does it really depend on what your ambitions are
1: within the sport? Again, this I'm, I'm really lucky that because of how we started online and stuff, there's a massive but like, wide demographic of people we get to work with. One of the friends of the club, he lifts actually. He's hopefully going to lift for Scotland in the in the games in the summer. Uh, David Steele. He was martial arts until he was like early 30s, then started after so he's like, I need to do something because I can't do nothing. So he did CrossFit, realised that he was quite good at the weightlifting part, and he just started competing in weightlifting in his like, I think it was when he was 32 or 33. He's going to turn 36 this year and he's going to go to, he's probably going to go to the Commonwealth Games to Scotland. But everyone else is like, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to be good at it because I'm starting to run too late. I started in my 30s. It's like, well, David's just gone from a martial art to CrossFit to then doing weightlifting. He lifts by himself in his garden in Scotland in the freezing <laughs> with, a, with a gilet on and a, a bobble hat on, and he might go to the Commonwealth games. So it's like I'm not saying everyone's going to do that, but to say that it's too late is like, well, there's a, there's enough examples to show like you'll still be able to do something. It's like if you started when you were in your late 20s or early 30s, um, your genetic potential was you might no let's go, so you might snatch 140 and clean and jerk 180. Where if you start when you're younger. Now it's probably going to be more like 115, 135. That's still fine. Like there's still progression you can work towards that. Like you still got a lot of years of fun where you can keep pushing towards it. And it gives you something to push towards. And I think it's the progression from where you start to where you finish is what people actually enjoy. It's not just the, the objective number. Because if you have a number in your head, you'll hit it, then you'll want to do another one. Then you'll hit it and you'll want to do more. You'll hit it and you want to do more. There'll always be, oh, when I get to this, then that'll be enough. It's just, just, just get started and just enjoy actually
0: enjoy trying to improve. Exactly, you never know where it's going to take you, and like you said, you might be someone who does have that potential, and you know you never know how these things work out in life. And I think, as you mentioned, some of these athletes only have a shelf life of the X amount of time because they're forced to compete and they're forced to put so much strain on their body. But if you don't have that and you don't place that amount of pressure on yourself, you might actually excel more than you expected to. So Olympics, you've touched on it a couple of times, but not in as much detail as I would expect someone within your sport to uh, speak about. So what are your thoughts on the Olympics? What are, you th- what are your thoughts on it not being a part of the 2028 Games? What is your overall perspective as someone who's um, quite so embedded in the sport?
1: They don't make it very clear. So the way they've done it, where it says you're going to be out the Olympics, this is like, um, oh, so this is, if you are uh, what's the best way to do? This is like basically probation. This is like the last stage of probation before you get told, right, you violated it, you've got to, you've, you're going back to jail. Like it's, it's not, we're definitely out, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen that hasn't happened yet that the IWF needs to do. Otherwise they're out. So this is basically the last chance saloon. We have to fix this within the, four, within the cycle, I think two years out, I think, or we definitely get booted. The reason for it is just because the IWF is so corrupt. When you look at a lot of Olympic sports, the Olympic sports do lend themselves to a lot of corruption because they're political tools. Whereas, Football, rugby, um, a lot of the sports are standalone sports and they might have an Olympic variation, but it's not the top one. You'll find it that the the corruption or any of the nepotism or any of the shady stuff that goes on is purely based on people trying to make more money off of each other. Whereas like the Olympic stuff, the IWF, it's used to put politically from country to country, which is why it ends up being worse. Like I don't, I don't know why it is, but it just seems to be sports that are in the Olympics, you end up seeing a lot more corruption towards them. And because athletes don't really tend to get as much money from Olympic sports, which is also very weird considering they're like, it's the pinnacle of sports if you like that also makes it a, a very weird issue to deal with if we stayed in the Olympics and we got reform from the iwF brilliant it would make the sport a lot better make it cleaner countries like um like Britain like any like anyone in the UK Germany Italy for example where they have their historically clean much cleaner countries where doping isn't almost widely accepted, you'd see them start to do better. I think it would be better for the Western world in terms of you'd see more countries getting involved and become more commercial. If we go out of the Olympics, it will still be absolutely fine. The IWF won't be in charge anymore because we won't have to be under them. It's this case of if you're in an Olympic sport, you have an Olympic federation. And if you're not the Olympic federation, a lot of the time people just won't be involved with you because they want to go to the Olympics. Whereas if there's no Olympics, it will now be based on who has the best federation, Where's the money? Which one's the most entertaining? Who has the best lifters? Who has the best staff? Who has the best board members? Um, say, similar to how you do with powerlifting. So powerlifting, um, the USAPL has just decided they might move to Australia and start running competitions there as well because the IPF just are being annoying. But when the USAPL have all the best competitors, in, uh, competitors with them because they're mostly uh, American-based, they can afford to say, well, we're not going to go under an international board but don't understand what they're doing. So we're just going to start running stuff ourselves. And that's what happens. Like, there's, a, there's a competition on, in powerlifting. And I can't remember if Braun runs it, but i think if you get first in it it's like an invitational competition you can get like 60 grand not including the money you win during the rounds that you do but with weightlifting someone can win a medal and they might not get funding from their country. But as in, you can work for four years and not get a medal. But for the powerlifting ones, you can go and you can place and you can actually get money and actually earn an honest living through it. So I think if we got booted out of the Olympics, we'd get more money eventually. And the sport would develop in a different way and it would still be popular. If we stay in the Olympics, it's hard to know which way it will go. It might stay just as corrupt or it might improve. It's really hard to tell. But I think something needs to change in the sport because it hasn't changed in a long time. So if it, the change is going to come one way or another.
0: Yeah, so you're very embedded in the sports. So you understand the nature of doping within it. For those who maybe don't have an idea and think the Olympics is, is completely clean, what would you say is the percentage? I know this is a very hard question. but If you had to say percentage oh. of people who are roughly clean and those who are not, A in the weightlifting and then B as the Olympics on a whole, where would you say that percentage is?
1: It's very hard to tell. So you can kind of it's it's hard to give a definition on it when you look at someone who's on drugs. Like you can't say this person's definitely on drugs and this person isn't because that's like you'll ruin you'll ruin your perspective on sports that way because you'll always think that anyone who's better than you is on drugs which is what a lot of people think but it's difficult you look at someone like Lashitalika Hadzi, who is the super heavyweight at the moment he's probably the the only person in the next 20 30 years who's going to hit a 500 kilo total apart from maybe a lad from the Netherlands who's actually in the UK at the moment J, who looks like he might actually touch on it in the in a few years he got banned when he was younger. He stayed away for four years. He came back, he was bigger and he was stronger and he was competing and winning more medals and hitting a total heavier than when he got popped. So it was a case of, okay, so if that was someone in the UK where they done a bit of bodybuilding drugs, they started doing weightlifting was still on them and then they stopped doing them and then they just trained better. I could believe, yeah, I can absolutely believe you've improved. But when someone is actually doing that sport for a living, they've been taking drugs, they've been found with them in an Olympic cycle, they've been banned for four years, they come back and then they're still lift it they've not taken a step they've not slowed down All that they look stronger and faster than ever before and they keep progressing it's just a bit like well he's not been he's not tested positive again but he's also not showing signs of being off of whatever he was using so it's i think that drug use is more is more what is is more common than what people think it is from the elite levels all the way down to the amateur levels like you actually be surprised at how many people within crossfit or within weightlifting and just lifting who just recreationally take drugs because it's because it because people, cause everyone gets competitive and wants to see what it see what that stuff does. But one for the average person who takes drugs and doesn't know what they're doing, like I've seen evidence of it, like from being in like different gyms and stuff, where someone will take something, it just doesn't, it almost just doesn't do anything. They might look a bit lean or get a bit bigger, but because they don't know what they're doing, their training's not good. They, it, it doesn't really make that much of an increase. Whereas when you get someone like Lash you get elite level lifters and elite level athletes and they take something, it's like supercharging them because they've already worked hard, they've already trained hard. You've now given them something where they can recover fast. They can do more work more often and amongst other things, amongst other positive effects, their training. So it's like, you're probably looking at not that many people at the top level being clean. Unfortunately, like when you like, if you look at what people have needed to get to that top level and it's hard to tell where the line is, like the line's very blurry as to when the doping has to start. There's a book. It's a very old one by a Russian guy called, no, he's Russian or Bulgarian. I'm from, from Eastern Europe called Vladimir Hristov and he talks about doping within Russia. And he was adamant. He was like, I got to 160, 190 on snatch, clean and jerk, but it didn't matter what I tried. I could get a little bit above the snatch, like 162, 163 clean and jerk. It's like every time I tried 200, it was a brick wall. Couldn't go any further. No chance. Soon. He said, as soon as they put me on something, all my numbers exploded up again because I could recover. My body didn't hurt all this stuff. So it's like, well, there's, it, there's accounts of it where it's like, as soon as they do it, they just shoot off. And there's a lot of people who say stuff like that. There's a lot of accounts where people would be like, well, I got to the 50, 90 mark. Or I got to this 55, 95 mark or that kind of marker as men regards of weight class. Then they took stuff and then it all of a sudden the total went through the roof. So it's like, it's, it's, diff- it's difficult to know. It's difficult to think, yeah, everyone's clean at the top level. It's also difficult to believe that everyone's not clean at the top level, but it's also difficult to see where is the line and what would you have to do to be good naturally, which is why countries like Britain, some South Korea, Japan, maybe, are impre- and Germany are impressive because they seem to be producing a lot of clean lifters who can go to an international level.
0: So you seem to be someone who's close to that ceiling, close to that wall. Why have you not chosen to take drugs if it's something you could probably get away with?
1: Just because it was a case of like, there's, um, there's a few like different like medications or like over the counter things that were legal in UK anti-doping, let's say two years ago, where almost everyone will have had it at some point, and then it goes on the list and it's a case. So some of it's stuff you can't even test for, really. Like when you look at it, but just from like just just from like purely like a moral point of view, it's like well, it's against the rules. And even though some rules of some sports are stupid. Like they're there to try and regulate things. And it's a case of when you look at it, it's like, well, I'm not going to do it because it's against the rules. And I try not to think too much into it. Cause if you start thinking into it and then you start thinking, oh, well, I might not get caught. I could probably not get caught. You know, these guys are so much further ahead of me. If I take it, I can catch up with them. You're just going to ruin the way that you look at sports. And you're also going to ruin the way you look at for other people, like people that I've known before who have either competed on drugs, and not said anything, or they've trained recreationally and used it they then think everyone who's good is on drugs because they they want that confirmation bias. Do you know what I mean? And when you look at it as well, like what would you get as a male in the country? If you went on drugs and you weren't going to worlds or euros or winning a medal, you'll total a bit heavier. You'll you've immediately increased your risk of like a bunch of health incidences. You're increasing your bill for nutrition and supplements. God knows by how much you'll look better on Instagram, but you now run the risk of being being caught by UCAD and they test, they actually test randomly quite fairly well here. And if you want to come here, a coach that now means you can't coach, you can't train in weightlifting gyms. You can't really run a business and you're probably going to be looked upon in a sour tone forever within your sport, especially if you're not very well liked. So it's like, um, I have a good example of Sonny Webster. As soon as he got caught in his ban and got finalized, uh, they didn't just ban him when he tried to coach people outside of weightlifting. They, they basically went for him until they found, they didn't, to make sure that he didn't coach weightlifting and banned him to the point where he couldn't come back. So it's a case of, if you take the morality out of it, of just don't do it because it's against the rules and we're trying to make it a fairer sport, like, what are you going to get out of it, realistically, if you're not going to get loads of money? Like, if you're going to dope and do another slot, I go to American football where they have in and out of season testing where it kind of, like, if you read into it, it's kind of allowing for it. Where if you doped and you manage to play two more seasons, you're getting a couple million more quid. You're getting a few million dollars or a hundred or two, three hundred more dollars, two, three hundred thousand more dollars rather than weightlifting where it's like you'll get a bit of a better total. You'll be able to post on Instagram and get a few more likes. But beyond that, like, you've got to work, you've got to really work. To use what you what you'll build with drugs to be able to get anything more out of it, and the risk of what will happen if you get caught or if you don't do it right is so high, it's like, well, is there really a point to that? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's it's an interesting choice that a lot of athletes will probably be faced with right and i think like you mentioned if you come into a sport like weightlifting where it might not be a guaranteed getting the money that you want to getting the prestige that you want to then yeah whereas when you look at people like you know people there are oblivious to thinking people like dwayne johnson aren't on gear for example and you know you're like how much is he getting paid per film you know how much is he getting paid to look like that and you kind of understand it but like i said when you're at that level and uh you can't guarantee the return on your investment i think there'll be some people who would like set and extremely competitive, maybe not doing it for the right reasons, and would make that choice. But I think the example of that that probably opened most people's eyes is the Netflix documentary Icarus. Did you see that?
1: Yeah. So I think I I didn't realize how long it was. I think I am around. I think I think I'm like three quarters of the way through it, and that just but that shows like how how in depth the whole doping thing is. But even with it, I think um, they talked about uh, I think like the KGB hiding vials in a wall, shaving down the plaster, taking it out, swapping the vials out. One of the stories either which is not as um which is not as slick is someone had like a tr- like a um a tray of vials of blood to be tested and they just accidentally quote-unquote dropped them and went oh no oh well and then just went and tested some other ones like there's there's a lot of stuff that goes on like as in when when you hear testing talks about like, i think weightlifting how house seven um josh have talked about it a lot on some of their like different podcasts i think on a lot of their patron only ones um that some of the doping isn't even a case of they know how to pass the test they've just paid to not be tested So the test says negative on it because they've not been tested. So it's not a case of you can even go back and be like, retest him. It's like, we would, but there's nothing to test. So some of these um, drugs bans where people are waiting for people to be popped retroactively to test more samples, they can't because there's no tests to to do. And some people who have been banned, there's rumours that they've not paid their bribe. So then... The negative test has just been written. So they've just been told, well, well you're banned. And it's like, but I've not tested positive. Well, we're going to ban you anyway, because that's what we think should happen. It's like, okay. Do you know what I mean? Like that's that's the level of how like bad doping's gotten in the IWF because of Tamasayan, the man who used to run it, who's now not here anymore, but like he's been like ousted. But again, that level of corruption, it takes a long time to like pick apart. And it's probably easier to completely wipe the federation, start a new one and start it again, more than it is to try and go back and pick it apart and then try to, you know, try to make it run properly.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, as you mentioned, as you alluded to, whether weightlifting remains the Olympics or not, it probably has a better chance if it doesn't, you know, you see other sports such as even just like UFC, for example, you know, the way that they've been able to just create a company based on that. And, and then people want to fight in these specific leagues and it gives people an opportunity to get into that. And, you know, if you've got everyone within there, and you are not politically driven, and you do want to keep everyone clean, then it makes the sport way better. Because so that was the early stages of the UFC, right? Everyone was on gear, everyone was enormous, and now the, the look of the sport is completely different. Yeah, there might be a little bit going on behind the scenes, but I doubt it's as much as it was, obviously, once upon a time. And just by so- and someone starting it who isn't influenced by. The Olympics or the politics are politics are involved in that. It just gives their ability to have a much cleaner sport. But coming back onto uh, something a little bit more <laughs> further away from the Olympics and more practical to the everyday gym work. So, in- staying injury free is probably one of the biggest tasks. You're lifting some significant loads a lot of times. How are you staying injury free, and how are you keeping your athletes injury free
1: as well? I think it's uh, it's something that I've had a different a differing opinion as you go through it. If you're lifting recreationally and you're you're lifting like very much within what your body can physically handle staying injury free really shouldn't be as diff- it really shouldn't be that difficult like you're always going to get a little bit of aches pains and niggles but as you get stronger and you're going into performance sport and if you think about a lot of stuff people do who are highly active for hobbies anyway crossfit skiing skateboarding running jog- like parkour like all these different things that you'll do there is an inherent risk with it where you might hurt yourself but the inherent risk and the reward that goes with that is part of why you're doing it so you need to accept, I remember um, there's a pal called Donnie Thompson who just when people ask him about his powerlifting career and how messed up his back got for a bit, and they said, would you not just stop lifting? He's like, well, I'd rather be in a little bit of discomfort sometimes, but be really strong than be in discomfort anyway and not be able and be weak. Like That's one of the ways I look at it. And also, Jim Wendler, the 5-1 programme, the writer of that, who's quite um, a famous bloke, he was um, saying that if you accept that when you're doing high-level sports, whether it's combat sports, lifting, whatever... You're going to get injured at some point. You're going to get hurt at some point. It's about how you manage it, which is going to allow you to bounce back and almost like you've never injured. is important. If you get injuries, you get hurt a little bit. It's about how you manage it. So when you get hurt, it's about not pushing through. It's about managing it properly, working around it, so that you're making sure that if you do get hurt, it's like and you've read, and you've read, you've redlined it a little bit on some lifts. You just make sure that you manage it so that your body kind of comes back down to like baseline, to you know, back to like a, like like a healthy like a healthy level quite quickly. And some people can handle a lot more dysfunction, a lot more discomfort. A lot more damage than others. Like some people are, you know, some people are Ferraris, some people are monster trucks. So There's a case of you just need to, but you need to treat each as, as as for what it is and how it runs. Some people, if they get a little bit of a niggle, like you know, their elbow hurts a little bit, their wrist is a bit sore, that means they're not going overhead that day. They need to do something else. They need to do, you know, pulls, maybe some squats and some dumbbell work. For some people, if their wrist and elbow hurts a little bit, they're putting an extra wrist wrap on. They're going to put a deep heat on their elbow. They're going to warm up more, and they're just going to push through it, and they'll be fine. And it's knowing yourself as you go through it. But for the normal gym goer, it's a case of you're going to know over time whether it's just a random pain you've got that day, whether it's just you push it a little bit too hard, whether you are injured or whether it's something that you just need to work around for the day and just... Go from there, and it's almost always easier to just back off a little bit or adjust your plan while staying as close to it as possible, and then just come back again and attack it later. Like you can't do that all the time, but sometimes you're going to have to make that decision of I'm just going to adjust this plan a little bit. So if you're like back hurts and back squats are bothering it, but front squats or a safety bar doesn't, then do that because it's similar enough. You're still squatting, so then you can still do what you planned, just in a with a slightly different with a slightly different method, and you'll be fine. Um, so just try and always train. And work around the injury within reason, unless like a physio says you absolutely can't do anything. Then you know you just need to make sure that you build that up. And if you're an athlete, as you get into high levels of performance, start building a small team around you. Get like a osteopath and a physio you really trust. Try and find someone to help you in nutrition. Get a coach that you trust who can work with the injuries and stuff. Because building that team that can work quite seamlessly together is what's important. Like we have um, Leslie Brown and um, Tash Osgood, so a Cairo and then a physiotherapist, both of who are weightless as well. Like they lift with us. So then when we work with them, they can very quickly say, Oh, uh, you know, Ben's injured this, but it's not that serious. You just need to work around this for a little bit. When it comes to a when he starts being able to get this motion back or can do X, Y, and Z, just putting back into normal training. And then immediately say, okay, cool, we can work around that. So it's just working around when you do get hurt or when you do feel a little bit beaten up so that you can keep training. Well, that's the important thing. You've got to find ways to keep going. Yeah. And I was just about to say, I'm not going to ask you the question because I already know the
0: answer, but like it's so important to walk the walk, right? So like you said with your physios. Given the fact that they weight lift with you, they can tell you, "Okay, this is not that big of a deal," and they'll be absolutely fine. Whereas if you've not experienced that, especially with yourself, it's like if you've not experienced those heavy loads. And for example, all weightlifters might be tied to the idea of like, "I need to do a front squat, I need to do a back squat." But then they'll see you and the giant loads you lift on the safety bar all the time. They'll be like, "Ah, okay, well Chris is you know using that." So I think that's super important. But you touched on nutrition. How big of a role does that play? And what's your
1: nutrition look like on a day to day basis? My nutrition is erratic. Uh, that's the thing that I just hate. Like, as when. Like I was at, when I was at university, biomechanics and nutrition were the two things where I struggled with studying them. Biomechanics because they just never, we just never did any movements I was interested in. And nutrition just because it was just so, and this is what they told us, like nutrition is such like a weird, it's almost like an art rather than the science in terms of where you look at everything because everyone's got a differing opinion on what happens. It's very hard to research. And I remember, um, do you remember at school you get taught like the three energy systems? So you've basically got your anaerobic system, you've got your glycosidic and then your aerobic system. Then like, those are the three. You then get shown this weird like map that covers like an entire like lecture room wall where it's thousands of lines across. And they're like, this is what an energy system looks like. And I was like, I don't want to know that. So (laughs) My nutrition is a case of, I just, I'm very basic. It's a case of if I'm trying to focus on my nutrition properly, which I don't usually after competitions, it's a case of, am I getting in enough protein? That's usually the first. And am I getting in enough water to offset the amount of caffeine? Am I getting in enough, am I getting in enough electrolytes if I need it? And then after that, it's just looking at what do I actually need to fuel that? I'm very lucky that I've never really, like my nutrition does affect how I train, but in terms of my base level training, in terms of just being able to come in and be like a seven or eight out of 10 in the gym or in training or in a game for that day, it's never really stopped me from doing that whereas some people like they don't eat three, four meals a day. They come to the gym, they feel fake, but they're going heavy. I've never really had that. Like I can, I can, I can mess up my nutrition quite a lot and still be okay. But in terms of reaching like a much higher level and being able to trade very well, adding that extra five, 10% is very important, so I try and keep it as simple as possible. I've got again, I'm really lucky that just because I think from being around for so long in fitness, that I've got a lot of friends who are quite smart who help me with that stuff. I'm um, Tom at Silverback Nutrition and Strength and Conditioning is one guy that helps me a lot. Um, Mikhail St Catherine runs a company called Power Move Fitness, and they're usually the first two people where if I have a nutrition question, where I'm like, what like a new supplement? What do you think of this? What do you think I need to take? Or I have queries, I just ask them and they just tell me in very simple terms, this is why and this is what you're going to do, and I just leave it with that. Like nutrition, like my my coaching in terms of what I do weightlifting wise. um, uh, a guy called Justin Holly who runs willpower weightlifting. I'm in Wales. He does that, but I'm more involved in that process because I understand it. Whereas nutrition, if someone tells me this is why I do this, I'd rather just go, okay, cool. I'll just do that because I just, I just hate it. I hate it so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think it's smart in a way to like separate the two, especially when it comes to a sport as well. You do have a specific nutrition team. You do have a rehab team. You do have a weightlifting team. And I think like you've recognized like you're bread and butter and your place that you want to be focusing on is the coaching aspect. So I think, yeah, sticking there and then going to the people who actually love and care about that stuff is probably a really smart thing to do. Awesome. So we're close to wrapping up now. And I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Obviously you guys do weightlifting workshops at your gym now as well. And funnily enough, my story was, and this is why I'm speaking to you today, I discovered yourself and I was like, I want to get into Olympic weightlifting. This was back in like late 2019. And I was like, okay, I need to go to a workshop first. So I've got a baseline to work because it would have been online. And then I signed up to go to the London Weightlifting Academy workshop uh, in like March, late March, 2020. And then the lockdowns happened. So it, 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 my, my dream never happened. So one day it will, and hopefully it will at your workshops. But if someone is going to be signing up to one of those, and I'll ask you about what you've got going on in a minute, in just quick, simple terms, someone's never really got into it before. Maybe they're just a recreational lifter. What three lifts do you think that they could focus on? And maybe what three mobility drills would you recommend them to start doing to set themselves up for Olympic weightlifting
1: I would honestly say finding and again there's a lot of good resources online for this finding out what your snatch grip is so that you kind of know where to grab the bath overhead squatting is gonna be one of the first movements. Front squatting, whether you do it with like your a full grip on the bar, you do it like a bodybuilder with cross arms, or you do it with no hands, I found a zombie squat. Being able to snatch grip deadlift and clean grip deadlift with with pretty decent form. So it looks like it might do when you're gonna snatch and clean. And then to be honest with the mobility, it's just trying to sit in a it's just trying to sit in a deeper squat for five to ten minutes a day. If you have to elevate your heels, if you have to wear weightlifting shoes, that's absolutely fine. But trying to work yourself down to the point where you can go into a deep squat with your feet flat on the floor and your back relatively straight. Like it doesn't have to be completely, completely arch that's all you really need to do to start because when you're snatching clean and jerking as long as you can get into the receiving positions you're probably fine so it's just being able to reach over your head with your back in a good position with a snatch grip or a clean grip then being able to do an overhead squat and a front squat if you can do that you'll you'll have a very easy time starting to learn the sport because you'll just be able to hit positions properly but that's literally it like just trying to make sure that you're moving through the deep squat fairly regularly things like deep side lunges and you know, cossack squats some split squats will also help but just moving through that stuff like and just repeating it We'll be fine. It's like if I imagine there'll be a fairly decent amount of people who are listening to this who've maybe like tried to learn an instrument, like learn piano or guitar, or learn a language. If you think about how you fumble through like the first month of it where it just feels stupid and you feel like an idiot because you're like, I don't understand what I'm doing, this is stupid, I don't want to do this, but you keep doing it. And then there's like that one day where you go, Oh, I actually feel like I know what I'm doing, like I've actually got a good impression, like I'm not great, but I know what I'm doing now, like I know what I'm like, I know I I've got the direction that I'm going in. That's how it will be. You'll try and try and try it, it'll feel really weird. You'll have one day where you go, okay, I kind of know what the bottom of the squat should feel like now. It's not perfect, but I know what I'm driving towards. You just need to keep trying and being patient until eventually one day you will just go, okay, I know what it's supposed to feel like. I've got a good impression of it now. And you, that that's the main thing. It's practicing those movements and having patience with it.
0: Yeah. I love how you break things down to such basics. You make it seem so much simple, simpler than it actually... Sometimes it seems, it seems quite, it seems simple in the sense there's two lifts, but when you actually know what those lifts are, it's very complex. I like the way that you just break it down to basics. I think I heard you mention on the podcast is that it doesn't necessarily have to look perfect, but if you can do it in a consistent way in a safe way, then that's the most important thing, right?
1: Yeah, that, that is exactly it. And it's a case of if it's consistent, it's safe and you feel like you've got like a natural, like a rhythm to doing it. That's, what's going to be important. You don't want to get bogged down when you're training anyway, you don't want to get bogged down with the three or four different phases of the lift and what each joint is doing. You just want to be able to have the intent of, I kind of know what I'm going for, what feeling I'm going for and you just start going through it. When you're lifting heavy on a platform or at the gym, you want to just be thinking about what effort you're putting into and what intent you have, not about each little thing, you know, each little stage of the lift. Awesome.
0: Yeah. I think that makes it a lot more simple for people
1: to understand. So where can people find yourself and the work you're doing with Ronan at the moment? So the easiest place to find this, if you want any information on any of the services we do would be roninstrength.co.uk. Um, that just has all of our coaching services. If you want to sign up to come and train with us at the gym, you want to uh, train with us online or find out about any of the workshops it'll be online. We've got one workshop, which is a one day, one going on at Revival and Hammersmith, which is actually sold out, but we will be doing more of them. So if you want to go and check out what it is that is going to entail, and then wait for the next ones, you can sign up there. We've got some beginners courses going on. Again, we're probably going to run more of those, not in March, but probably in April. And then that is it. We also do, we do some strength and conditioning work, but our main things are weightlifting and powerlifting. So you'll be able to find everything there. Uh, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's at kdotspeed. And then if you want to find Ronin Strength, it's Ronin underscore strength underscore UK. And you can find actually everything, everything we do on there.
0: Perfect. Thank you. I'll put it all in the show notes and you've got a awesome surname for the sport that you're in. I thought it was just a way of saying,
1: yeah, I'm super explosive, but I was like, Oh, speed is actually a surname. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I get that a lot. Laura gets a lot. She's been like, is that actually his name? It's like, yes, yes, it is.
0: <laughs> and uh, just on the note of the uh, workshop as well, I'm, I think I'm going to be back in London in April. So I'm going to try and get to that if, uh, if I'm, if the dates work out, so you'll, you'll hopefully be seeing me there as well that'd
1: be really great mate that'd be fantastic awesome
0: well thank you for your time today it's been a really awesome conversation and uh, i will hopefully speak with you again soon yeah thank you very much for having me and that was the simply fit podcast i hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode i feel inspired to improve your health and well-being be sure to search for simply fit in apple podcasts google podcasts and spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast from and go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.